reading from Ephesians 6, 10 to 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord in all his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flames, flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Well, in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've actually seen the Apostle Paul unpack what it means to live a life worthy of the calling that we've uh, received. As a result of being brought into God's new humanity, which he's outlined in the first uh, few chapters of Ephesians through the death and resurrection of Christ. And we've seen that worked out in two images. Firstly, Mike took us through the image of putting off the old self and uh, putting on the new self that God had created. And then we saw uh, the idea of living in God's light, that God has made us light through Christ, uh, to live in light rather than darkness, the darkness he'd rescued us from. But here's the critical question behind this closing section of Ephesians. How confident are you, how confident are you that you can do it? How confident are you that you can resist our culture's call to sexual immorality or lust? How confident are you that you can resist the tug of greed? How confident are you that um, you can be the husband or wife you should be? How confident are you that through your instruction of your children they'll grow up to know and serve the Lord? How confident are you that you can maintain your stand until Christ comes, whatever may come your way? Well, friends, I'm here to tell you that humanly speaking, this morning you haven't got a hope. 
not a hope of doing so. And that's one of the reasons that Paul writes this section of Ephesians as he closes off the book. For the truth is that we need God's gracious power to maintain our stand to the end every bit as much as we needed it to come to Christ in the first place. These final words then are all about what I've called strength to stand firm. Slightly different from the um, title in your booklet if, you, if, you, if you're going through that. Now what is remarkable here in this um, last section of the letter is that while it's not a summary of what Paul has been doing through Ephesians, the language Paul uses picks up just about every major theme that uh, he has spoken out about throughout Ephesians. Consider the following table by way of illustration. Can you take it forward for me? Now, I don't want you to memorise this. There's no prize for being able to do this in a second. But just to give you an idea, all these words appear in Ephesians 16 to 20. Power, darkness, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, mystery, the devil's schemes, heavenly realms and prayer. And they've all been mentioned here in greater form throughout. So it's just to say that although Paul is not summarising his thought, he's very well aware of what he's actually said in the previous chapters. And hence he actually sees a real connection with this standing firm here with his previous thought. He hasn't lost sight of what he's said, but what he does now is he uh, goes about feeling, um, talking about the strength we need to fulfil it. So he begins in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now this is not an appeal for us to find strength in ourselves, but rather to find strength in God's power. That's why he adds, be strong in the Lord. The mighty power that um, Paul has already noted way back in chapter 1 is the mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. The call to be strong is a call actually to be strengthened in the Lord's power. A call to be strengthened to stand firm in our Christian walk and allegiance to Jesus. Note, for instance, the repetition of the call to stand in verses 10 to 14. He says in verse 11, to take your stand. In verse 13, to stand your ground. Then, and to stand. And then the beginning of verse 14, to stand firm. That's what he's really on about. If we're to stand firm then, what power of God are we to utilise? Paul's answer is the armour of God. We're to put on God's armour. So this morning, I want us to see three things, really, that Paul outlines here about God's armour. The need, first of all, to put on God's armour, then the way to put on God's armour, and finally the importance of prayer in putting on God's armour. So first of all, the need to put on God's armour. Verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything 
to stand. Now, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if we could spend our lives in peace and tranquility, enjoying the company of our loved ones and the fellowship of God's people. But I'm afraid, friends, that that simply is not possible. We have a very powerful enemy working against us all the time. Someone, in the words of 1 Peter 5, 8, seeking to devour us. It is, of course, the devil. And we need to put on God's armour, says Paul, so that... Let's see if I'm going any better. No? Can we take it forward again? We need to put it hand again. So that we can um, stand against the devil's schemes. Now, Paul's already referred to the devil in chapter 2, verse 2, as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's warned us in chapter 4, verse 27, to be careful that our anger does not give the devil a foothold. Now he notes another feature, the believer's powerful enemy. He is cunning. He's subtle. He is a schemer. You see, the devil rarely comes at us head on. But what he does is seek to weaken our Christian stance centimetre by centimetre by centimetre. C.S. Lewis, that great Christian writer of the 20th century, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Anybody ever read The Screwtape Letters? Some people? Good, should be, should be um, required reading for every Christian. Um, the book is a series of letters written by Screwtape, who is a, um, a senior devil. And he's writing to his nephew, trainee, Wormwood, and giving him advice about, uh, you know, how to deceive Christians and pull them back and other humans as well, stop them from becoming Christians as well. Um, and so what I did was, take me forward then please, I thought I'd uh, give you a couple of examples of quotes. This is what he says in one. I can't remember who Slubgob is, so no, ask me. Even under Slubgob, is that right? This is, this is um, screw tape, giving advice to Wormwood. You must have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation. The enemy, and the enemy in obviously for screw tape is God. The enemy, the enemy's or God's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma. Either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult for them. The latter for the last few centuries we have been closing as a way of escape. We've done this through the poets and novelists by persuading humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience which they call being in love is the only respectable ground for marriage. That marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. Next one. Never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal satisfying form, 
we are in a sense on the enemy that is God's ground. He, God, made the pleasure. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. And then the last one. In a week or two, you'll be making him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not perhaps a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing. When I first read Screwtape Letters, letters, um, I wondered how Lewis could have understood me so clearly and could have got inside my head and seen and thought so clearly. How did he know? Well, because it was true for him too and for every believer. I commend the book to you. It's in extremely disturbing (laughs) but you see we need God's armour because our struggle is not a human one Paul says it's not against flesh and blood but our struggle is against spiritual forces thank you in verse 12 Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who are these rulers, authorities and powers, principalities? Well, one theory that has gained a lot of momentum in the last few decades is to identify these rulers primarily in earthly terms, that is, referring to human institutions or laws or structures that oppress humanity. Um, but I think this view has more to do with a disbelief in the supernatural and wanting um, to sort of uh, demythologise Paul's language than it does to the New Testament. We should see these powers, as most evangelical New Testament scholars do, as personal, supernatural, demonic influences who do the devil's bidding. Now that's not to deny that human social, political and economic structures um, can become demonic or be used by demonic powers to bring about human oppression. I think history would confirm that. But the clarion call that Paul gives here is the realisation that our struggle is against spiritual forces and to prevail in that struggle we need to put on the armour of God. And so we moved in from the need to put on God's armour to the way to put on God's armour in the next one, please. From verses 14 to 17, Paul identifies six pieces of what was well known as the typical Roman soldier's armour. And here's a picture. So you can see they're even numbered. Look at that. The belt of truth. And then the breastplate of righteousness, feet ready for action, shield of faith, um, 
helmet of salvation and sword of the Spirit. Um, these would have been very well known uh, to Paul's audience and probably reasonably well known to us if you've seen uh, some of the movies of you know, Roman battle and that sort of thing uh, here. Now five of these, as you'll notice, are basically defensive, having to do with protecting your body in various details and one is the active weapon, that is the sword. I'm not going to go into detail on each one. We might be here for a longer time if I do that, but I do want to make a couple of comments about each one in order to help us see what it means to put on the armour of God and why it is effective in, um, in putting back and resisting uh, the devil. First of all, Paul says, buckle up with the belt of truth. One more, please. Paul's already referred to truth in Ephesians and uh, for him in Ephesians it means at this stage the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel message about Jesus. The Ephesians were included in God's family when they heard the message of the truth, the gospel of salvation. And truth always refers to, as well, a life lived out consistent with the truth of the gospel. Now, it's interesting, I think, that Paul puts this first. The belt, you see, holds everything together. Sure does for me, anyway. (laughs) So also, for the Christian, the Christian life and walk, that the Christian gospel is true, is crucial. The gospel works in our lives because it's true. The best thing, the best thing about being a Christian, friends, is that it's true. If it isn't, all else is meaningless. The game is up. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, our faith becomes futile. But it is true. Jesus did rise from the dead. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. His death did pay the penalty for our sins. We do belong to him. His spirit testifies with our spirit that that is true and that we will live with him for eternity. All other religions just have dead heroes. But the truth of the Christian faith Uh, is that it rests on the fact that it proclaims a risen Lord. To me, the most precious thing of all about the Christian faith is that it's true. Everything else is just a lie. It's this truth of the gospel that arms us against any temptation to false religion that the devil might concoct. Well, to this truth we add righteousness. Set in place the breastplate of righteousness. One more, thank you. Um, The breastplate was a key, as you can imagine, protection for the soldier, obviously covering the chest and all the vital organs. Righteousness here could either be seen as the righteous status that we have in Christ through his death on the cross or the righteous behaviour that comes about following the righteous character of God. 
And I think that's probably what it does mean here because the only two other places in Ephesians where righteousness occurs is uh, definitely has an, an ethical flavour, righteous behaviour. So as John Stott says, um, to cultivate a life of righteousness is a way to resist the evil one's temptations. The third piece of armour has to do with a soldier's boots on his feet. But Paul puts it in a bit of a, a weird way. So I put here, fit your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. That's what verse 15 says. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now we know the gospel of peace is a strong theme in Ephesians. He spent most of chapter 2 uh, of Paul to tell us that Jesus has brought about peace, that Jesus is our peace. Peace with God through the shedding of his blood and peace with Jew and Gentile between one another in our relationships. It is this gospel of peace that readies us for the battle. Just like the boots of the Roman soldier that readied him to take his stand in battle. They often actually had spikes in the bottom so that they didn't lose their uh, footing. As we continue to remind ourselves of the wonderful peace we have with God and work hard to maintain peace and love with one another, that's the foundation from which we prepare ourselves to resist the devil's schemes. Well, the fourth piece of armour is the shield of faith. So we're to take up uh, the shield of faith. Now, the shield was pretty big. It was about four feet high or 1.2 metres and sort of one day thing and about two and a half feet, whatever that is in metres, wide. And for many people, it could virtually cover the whole of the soldier. It was a very important piece um, of the armour. And at this point, it's a good, uh, good time to highlight that all these um, imperatives that we've been going through in this armour are in the original or in the plural. They're not just in the singular. We might imagine them as, in, uh, as individual, as they are, applying individually, but Paul's actually writing also in a collective sense. So what he's actually saying, he's writing as to this is the way we ought to look like as a community as well, not just as individuals. So the, the commands for the church as a whole, not simply the individual. And if you've seen any movies of good battles with Roman warfare and stuff like that, uh, you'll see how the, how the uh, shield of faith, or the shield, um, worked collectively for Roman soldiers. Paul says the shield of faith, by the shield of faith, it can distinguish um, all the flaming arrows of the devil. Now flaming arrows, lots of them, were part of ancient warfare. Lots of archers, lots of flaming arrows coming at you. Whoever was always looking at would shout, Shields! The soldiers would bend down to the knee, they would join their shields in a particular way and they were virtually impenetrable from the flaming arrows. would completely cover the whole lot of them in the way they'd worked out what to do. So it is with us as Christian believers. In chapter 2 verse 8 Paul says you've been saved by grace through faith. In chapter 3 verse 12 in him Jesus and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It is through our trust in the resurrection of Jesus and our loyalty to him that we are protected from the flaming arrows of the devil. 
Well, what, what might they be? Well, it could be the arrow of doubt or despair. Is God really there? Or it could be the arrow of personal tragedy. Does God really care? Could be the arrow of false teaching, undermining the truth of the gospel or the divinity of Jesus. Is he really God? Or it could be the arrow of persecution and the like. These are the flaming arrows used very effectively by the devil to seek to destroy our relationship with God. I've known a number of people, and I'm sure you have too, who have been fatally wounded by some of these arrows and given up on their faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus, maintaining our relationship with him, will protect us, friends, from the flaming arrows Uh, that virtually none of us are immune to. So along with the shield of faith in, uh, Paul says also, take the helmet of salvation. Obviously, you know, we know what the helmet protects. The helmet's very important, protects an important part of the body, the head. Here Paul calls it the helmet of salvation. That is, uh, our assurance of the salvation we have in Christ. We know we belong to Christ. We know, therefore, whatever the devil throws at us, the end is certain. Jesus will return and take us to be with him forever. It's this assurance of Jesus' return and an eternity free from sin and suffering that protects us from falling away from Christ when life gets tough. So let me ask you, friends, today, do you know for sure that you belong to Christ, that you are saved through him? Because if you don't, that makes you incredibly vulnerable to the devil's schemes. And you need to speak to me or to somebody else, you know, a good friend here, because God wants you to be sure. It's part of his armour given to protect you. Well, when we come to the final piece of armour, then we move from the defensive to the offensive, the one true weapon with which to attack the devil. In verse 17, we are told to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God, really, is the way we cut to shreds the deceptive messages of the devil. And we have a perfect example of this in action in the New Testament. Can anybody guess who I'm speaking about? Jesus, Jesus, right. Obvious, isn't it? Himself. In chapter 4 of Luke, um, records the temptation of Jesus by the devil. He's led out into the desert by the Spirit, and ate nothing for 40 days. I guess that made him fairly hungry. And the first thing the devil does 
is hit right where it hurts to tempt him to use his power to turn stones into bread. Hey, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Aren't you starving? Jesus quotes the word of God from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verse 3. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Then the devil tempts Jesus with riches, wealth and power. Well, that's no surprise, is it? If we only worship him, if he only worships him. The devil will give him all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus meets such temptation with the word of God. Again, this time from Deuteronomy 6.13, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and him only. But most deceptive of all, however, is the third temptation. A devil attempts to use the word of God itself against Jesus by distorting it. He takes Jesus to a high place and tempts him to throw himself down. Because guess what? Psalm 91 promises that God's angels won't let him die. They won't let anything, any harm come to him because of who he is. And Jesus again quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil tempts Jesus with pride to show off his greatness with wealth and splendour and even with the distortion of the word of God. And he's still doing the same to us today. But I want to make clear there's no need to fear the devil. No need to fear him. There's no need to be afraid that somehow he can separate you from Jesus without your permission. Not at all. Jesus has already won the victory for us at the cross. And God has graciously given us the tools of his armour here, spelled out, to resist the evil one. All we need to do is to utilise them. We do not need to fear, but we do need to be alert. We do need to be alert. And that is where we move to our third main point today, the importance of prayer for putting on God's armour. Verses 18 to 20. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now prayer is obviously not seen as one of the pieces of God's armour here. Yet it's clear from the comprehensive call to prayer that, that Paul has here that it's nevertheless critical to utilising these pieces of God's armour. How then should we see prayer connected to putting on God's armour? Well, I think um, I see the call to prayer here as something um, that underlies uh, our whole Christian life and the way we put it on. We're in a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual struggle. 
That's why Paul says we should pray in the Spirit, by which he means in the power of the Spirit, as the Spirit leads us. Paul's call to prayer is comprehensive. Notice in the next line, we're to pray always, on all occasions, and for all of God's people. It sort of expresses the demeanour or sphere in which we're to put on God's armour in prayerful dependence on God for his grace to help us in our struggle against the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, I don't think Paul is advocating here a 24-7 quiet time. He couldn't have done that himself. He was a tent maker. He needed to do all sorts of stuff as well. Rather, what he is advocating is a consistent sense of God's presence with us. which will involve, of course, both formal times of prayer and informal times throughout the day of various needs and people. Most Christians, says John Stott, pray sometimes with some prayers, some degree of perseverance for some of God's people. (laughs) That fits me pretty well. For Paul, a sense of prayerful dependence upon the grace and power of God is to be constant in our lives. He urges, he urges the Ephesians to pray, um, even for Paul. Next one, thank you. Even for Paul, if he is to proclaim the gospel fearlessly. Even Paul needs this. Paul knows he needs it as well. Now, if you were here last week when Mike interviewed Meredith and I about marriage and raising children. You would have heard my own confession that I find maintaining consistent prayer life hard. There are reasons for that that I won't go into, but but we must keep at it. It keeps us alert and acknowledges our dependence upon God and his grace. Now, two things I've found helpful uh, for the technology-minded. Many of you, I'm sure, already know this. There's an app called Prayer Mate. goes on your phone or on your tablet or whatever you want it on. It's fantastic from the point of view of uh, keeping you regular in prayer and remembering the things you should be praying for. If I didn't have that, I'd pray for about that much of what I should be praying for. So I commend that to you. Yeah, what about praying for God's people? How many of God's people here do you pray for? Well, one of the things I've found helpful is praying through the church directory. When you pray, in the day or in quiet time or whatever, what I do now is I open the directory and go through a couple of people. I might not know much about them, but then it alerts me that I ought to try and find out something about them. Things like that. To pray courses. To pray for God's people. One cannot successfully live the Christian life, friends, in cruise control. Might be great for cars, but you just can't live the Christian life like that in cruise control. The devil seeks to bring us down. His schemes are deceptive. We must remain alert. Utilising God's armour and our dependence upon God in prayer. Well, Paul ends the great book of Ephesians 
with verses 21 to 24. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Well, he makes a word about Tychicus, who it seems from these words must have been the bearer of the letter, who was coming to them with the letter um, he was sending. Uh, no Australia Postal things back in those days. And then he closes with these beautiful words in verses 23 and 24. Wishing them two things, he is mentioned prominently in Ephesians, peace and grace. They're good words to end um, our series with. Um, And I pray, brothers and sisters, that both individually and as a community here at Grove, we will be known um, always as those who love Christ with an undying love. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful book that we've been uh, looking at this term of Ephesians. Uh, We thank you for the way it paints the great picture of your salvation for us in Christ, Uh, not only individually but the way you have brought us together as your people um, in relationship with one another and with you. Lord, help us to be your people in the way we live each day and help us uh, not to just go about that in an unthinking way but to realise that we do have a powerful enemy and we do have the means to resist him and destroy him through the tools that you've given us in the armour of God. We pray that we may be an encouragement to one another as we seek to encourage one another to put those tools on of truth and righteousness. Um, Lord, we do just ask that it may be true that we may always love Christ uh, with an undying love. In his name we pray. Amen.